Welcome back to Division One Rejects. I'm your host, Kobe Manzo. We've had three fantastic championship games. You know, right off the bat, that D3 game, one of the best games, if not the best game I've watched all year. Harding puts on a freaking clinic down in McKinney, Texas, over Colorado School of Mines. And then finally today on Monday, shitty slate, by the way, on, on ESPN3, I think the NAIA squads got screwed over there, but... Uh, Kaiser gets the job done in a dominant fashion over a very quality Northwestern college squad. So I'm excited to break all those down. We won't have any guests as far as players and coaches are concerned tonight. Uh, on this episode, we'll have Jimmy joining me here soon. Talk about the Division Three championship. Shores will be on later. Talk about the NAIA side of things. And we've got a lot of really good stuff tonight. We've got highlights from all three matchups. All the best plays that if you didn't watch, if you live under some kind of rock, we got you. Or if you just didn't want to pay for ESPN+, Plus, you're a cheap-ass Got you covered either way. It doesn't matter. I don't discriminate. Otherwise, we'll cover all the championships. Today's a pretty simple episode. And to start it off, you know, remember, use the timestamps at the bottom of the episode. Fast forward any part you want to skip to. You might want to skip over my playoff rant. Division two playoffs, the shittiest system in college football. I'm going to go on about a 10-minute tangent about why that's so bad. I don't know if it'll last actually 10 minutes. We'll find out. But I'm pretty frustrated with it. I think a lot of people, with, uh, you know, rightfully so, are upset with the playoff system right now that is plaguing Division II football as far as it comes to geographic regions and other seeding-type formulaic issues. But I'm going to lead with that. Then we'll get into championships. We'll go D2, D3, NAIA, all the best stuff on D1R 140. I believe it's 145 tonight. That's big time. That's big time. But as always, remember, on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, or Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, there's timestamps, video chapters in the description. Fast forward to any part of the episode you want to listen to. Otherwise, I appreciate you for tuning in. I have a lot of fun ideas for this offseason that we're going to get started on, but might take a little bit of a break here as football winds down. We'll see what we'll see what happens with the podcast. But follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Subscribe to the YouTube if you are. We're so close to 1,000 subscribers. I appreciate each and every one of you. But let's get right into this thing. The D2 playoffs. And I think the best way to start it is to talk about the current structure, and then we'll talk about maybe why it's not ideal for the uh, you know for the actual playoffs. Right now in Division Two football, you have four geographic regions with seven teams in each, right? And there's three weeks of rankings that come out to kind of see who's going to be selected in those regions um, by obviously a separate committee. So the seven teams that are deemed the best in this region are getting to the playoffs. But here's the first glaring issue. If there are nine quality teams in this region and five quality teams in this region, you know, do we move over? No. Seven and seven. That means two quality teams are being left out over here for you mathematicians, and two non-quality teams are making it into the playoffs in said region. Tough. Now, the regions currently are a little bit different, but this has been released semi-recently. The reasons are going to change when it comes to 2025 as Conference Carolinas begins sponsorship of their conference, and I have some... I can talk about that uh, news a little bit as well as we kind of kick this thing off, but there's the four super regions. Again, this is not until 2025, so we still have a couple seasons until this officially takes effect, but Conference Carolina is kind of an interesting piece. The teams featured in this conference will be as follows. Barton, Schoen, Erskine? I'm totally butchering that. UNC Pembroke, uh, North Greenville, and Shorter are all in. The 2025 season, they will be in Conference Carolinas. So, kind of interesting there. You're poaching from a couple different conferences. I think the SAC, the MEC, the GSC, there's a couple that are getting poached from all these different conferences. It will it kind of be interesting to see how they respond to that and, and try and, you know, address that. But... 
There's been a lot of teams that have history in the Conference Carolinas, App State being one of them, uh, way back when. They stopped in like 67. But there's a lot of D2 teams that have also had stints in this conference. But uh, it looks like their most recent members have been, shoot, man, 1972. 1974, that appears to be the last time that they sponsored any kind of team in football. So this has kind of been a long time coming, it sounds like. But anyways, to get away from that, this is the map right here. So Super Region 1, again, this takes effect in 2025. Super Region 1 is the CIAA, the MEC, the NE10, and the PSAC. Super Region 2 has Conference Carolinas, that's the CC, the Gulf South, the SAC, and the SEAC. Super Region 3 is the GLIAC, the GLVC, the GMAC, and the NSIC. And Super Region 4 is the GAC, the LSC, the Lone Star, the MIAA, and then the RMAC. So this is actually better than what it currently is. As it stands right now, Super Region number 3 has the GLIAC, uh, the MIAA, and the GAC. Three really solid conferences. And we saw that this year. When we'll take a look at the final rankings for this year. I think four out of the top like six are Super Region 3 teams. Or maybe even more than that. And that's why this system is incredibly flawed. But that's kind of an idea of what these regions and how they're going to change. I don't know why this isn't... You look at Super Region 3, for example. The GLIAC, the Great Lakes Valley Conference, the Great uh, or Great Mid-American Conference, and then the Northern Sun. Uh, like Geographically, it makes so much more sense. Why would the MIAA be in that conference? I don't know. I don't know who the hell was sitting around the table and had the map to do this. Uh, but let's talk about why it stinks. Right, And I'll bring the camera back on me so you can see my, my rant here. This is why the current setup sucks. Take, for example, this year. We'll start with this year. You have Colorado School of Mines and Harding, the Bisons. They meet in the championship. Fantastic. The two best teams in football. I certainly think so. I wouldn't argue it any other way. Let's look at this model that's going to be adopted in 2025. You notice in Super Region 4, the GAC and the RMAC are both in Super Region 4. What does that mean, Kobe? That means Harding and Colorado Mines at the latest, would meet in the quarterfinal round. So if they supposedly, which again, this year they were, the two best teams in football are meeting in the quarterfinals, what you're doing is robbing us of quality semifinal and championship games. Now, on the flip side of that, were Harding and Colorado School of Mines the best two teams this year? I think there's certainly a great argument for that. But... There's always a but, right? There is always a but. Let's look at Harding's route to the national championship. Uh, once again, I believe from Reddit College Football, so shout out to the tweets. So it makes it easier for me digging up all this stuff. This is Harding's route to the college football national championship in Division Two. They get to buy the first week because they are the one seed in the region. The next week, they host, which, by the way, they hosted all these except for the championship game. They host Central Missouri, the best offense in Division Two, with the Harlan Hill winner over there and Zach Zabrowski, absolute dog. 35-34, they block an extra point to escape overtime against the Mules on their home field. That game was incredible. It was a tight, tough game. Uh, offenses, both offenses having great performances. Look at the next week in the quarterfinal round against number two, Grand Valley State, 7-6. to six. Grand Valley leads 6 nothing for almost the entire contest. Harding goes down, scores late, one-point game. Uh, like, literally the same thing as last week, but instead of offense, it was defense. Flexing their muscles the entire game. Grand Valley State's front seven shows out. We've seen Harding do it a lot. They get the best of Grand Valley in that one. Okay, those are fantastic second round and third round games. Semifinal and championship must have been super competitive, right? You'd be wrong, actually. You'd be very wrong. Lenore Ryan, 
quality football team that they are. Nothing taken away from Lenore Ryan. They went over to Searcy, Arkansas, and they went back to yeah, North Carolina, somewhere over there. I don't know what city they're from, with their tail tucked between their legs because they got an ass whooping over there in Searcy, Arkansas. 55-14, the game could have been busted open even more than that. They could have scored 70 if they want to. They go to the championship. Colorado School of Alliance shows, uh, shows up, scores on the first drive, 7-0. Harding rattles off 38 unanswered and rolls in the national championship game. I understand. They play the flex bone. It's hard to, it's certainly hard to game plan and, and predict for, for that kind of thing. I, I totally get it. I don't care. With that being said, I don't care. Why are the two best games that this team has played in the playoffs their first two games as opposed to their last two games? Something is flawed. Super Region 3, and this is not all of history, this is the last three years. Super Region 3, the winner of Super Region 3 has dominated not one, dominated the national championship game and has robbed us all of really great football that could have been. So let's talk more examples. Just to, if I didn't illustrate it enough already, let's just talk some more examples, right? Uh, Ferris, let's go last year. I just, you know, just looking at it. Ferris State football in 2022, obviously before this year, back-to-back defending national champions. Last year, they go 14-1. and They lose the Grand Valley in the Anchor Bone Classic by one point. Two of the best teams in the country. They get a rematch with Grand Valley uh, in the second round of the playoffs. So at least, or third round, excuse me, third round of the playoffs. So it was in the uh, regional final. They win that one, 24-21. I'll pull it up on the screen, actually, so you guys can just see it and not have to just take my word for it. Uh, there we are. So here's their run in the playoffs last year. Here we go. First round of the playoffs, they match up against a Davenport team that they're very familiar with in the GLIAC. They curb stomped them, 41-7. to Okay, now here we go. It gets interesting. Pittsburgh State, really quality opponent out of the MIAA. Had no business this being a second-round matchup. 17-14. Gave them arguably the best game of the, of the playoff run. Then you get Grand Valley State within Super Region 3. 24-21, a field goal. Fantastic game. Came down to the final moments. There we go. Semifinal and championship game. 38-17, 41-14. Let me tell you what. Halftime of the championship game, I believe, was 21-0 over Colorado School of Mines. A very good Colorado School of Mines team that at the time had a Harlan Hill Award winner in John Matoka. Their defense did not know what the fuck to do with Fair State. Absolutely not. That's bad for football. It's bad for Division II. It, this is not... When people tune into Division II football, right? Why is it bad for football? When people tune into Division II football, casual fans, you're watching the semifinals, you're watching the finals. Because that's on ESPN Plus and ESPN3, whatever the hell it is. If you're showing up, this is your first time watching Division II football, and you're watching an ass-kicking live on your television set, you might never watch Division II football again. If you show up and you're watching Pittsburgh Fair State, GV Fair State, this is just this year example. There's so many other great contests. I'm just talking in 2022, those, those specific examples. Those are games that are exciting, right? Harding versus Central uh, Missouri. Harding versus GV. Those are games that are going to make people want to maybe dive into D2 football. Oh, these are really great teams just going at it. Absolute slugfest. Instead, the national product that we as Division II, I say we, I guess because I'm a former player, so I, I can say we, I think, right? The national product we are putting on television is subpar. And you're not going to continue to get more eyes in the game, which apparently is the ultimate goal of the NCAA, which I don't fucking believe for one second because of the deal with Huddle and all of the streaming rights and things that went on this postseason. If really your idea is to, you know, their goal is to get more eyes in the game, this is bullshit. It's terrible. And, you know, we can look at two, 
I'll have to pull it up because I didn't have it pulled up uh, before. But Wayne Cavati, who um, I obviously have a lot of respect for, he does a great job covering all things Division Two. He puts out his final top ten rankings, or I guess just time, final power rankings um, for Division Two, if you will. And I will pull them up right now, and I want you to notice something. And again. Super Region 3 has not always been dominant. Years prior, you could have said the Gulf South and Super Region number, that would be number four, correct? I'm all over the place. I don't know. But the Gulf South with Valdosta State and West Florida and that kind of run, they, you could have said that was the dominant Super Region. Absolutely. I'm here for it. We shouldn't have to have that. That should not be the case whatsoever. So here's the final top 10 from Wayne Cavati, and I, I think you'll notice some things uh, right off the rip here. The obvious number one is Harding. I mean, they won the damn thing, so you're going to put them at number one. Number two, School of Mines. Sure, they win the head-to-head versus Grand Valley to open the season. You have that, and they're still a very fucking good football team. No, Nothing taken away from those guys. They're fantastic. Here we go. Number three, Grand Valley State. Number four, Pittsburgh State. Number five, Central Missouri. You're telling me four out of the top five teams in the country are in the same geographic region. It gets better. Now you go Lenore Ryan, Valdosta, Ferris. Five of the eight best teams in the country, again, according to, to Wayne, who I, he covers this sport. He's been covering this sport forever. I, I certainly would agree with him. Maybe I'm biased because I played in the... I, five of the top eight best teams in the country are playing in the same super region. It's flawed. The system is flawed. You're robbing people of very good football. And it sucks. I hate it. As a fan of this and a fan of D2 football in general, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Can you tell? Probably not. Um, but those are those are the rankings. And now, okay, all my complaining out of the way, what's your solution, Kobe? You got a better fucking idea? Sorry, I'm a lot of cussing already. Sorry. <laughs> what's your solution, Mr. Big Brain? You got a better idea? You got an alternative for us? I have an easy option, which I feel like would be the, the easiest for the NCAA to adopt. And the simple answer is the, follow the FCS model, right? The simple fact, and I'm pulling it up here, but the simple fact that North Dakota State and South Dakota State can meet in the national championship should be all we need to know about their model of football that tells us it is working correctly. Those teams are in the same league, Missouri Valley Conference, I do believe. Uh, There are also two of, I think, three states in the United States that don't have FBS football, so shocker that their FCS teams are incredibly good. But the fact, Montana being the other one, and they're playing for a championship, look at that. The fact that those two teams can meet in the championship with them being rivals uh, geographically not far at all, that makes that football more enjoyable because that's the be- that was the best game all year, right? Okay, so let's look at the playoff format. You do have automatic bids, and since it's currently at 24 teams right now, 24-team format, the FCS playoffs feature the champion of every conference except for the Southwestern Athletic Conference and the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conferences. So they send their champions to the Celebration Bowl, um, that would be the SAC and the MEAC, so the HBCU squads, they have that celebration bowl. And then the Ivy League opts out of the postseason. Other than that, everyone is included within this within this pool. The Big South and the Ohio Valley formed a scheduling alliance and send one representative. And then the ASUN and the Western Athletic Conference combined to form the United Athletic Conference, specifically for football. So they have one rep as well. So this is where it gets interesting. 24 teams, FCS has 10 automatic bids. So... Look at it this year. You know, if you go, again, for you mathematicians out there, 24 spots, 10 automatic bids, that leaves 14 at large. And this is the big problem with Division Three football because you have so many Division Three conferences 
that you're leaving only four at large bids. Right now, D3 had a 32-team playoff system. There were 28 automatic bids in Division Three football this year, which means if you didn't win your conference, if there were two great teams in a conference and one of them gets left out because there's only four at-large bids in the whole Division Three. Division Two, thankfully, is not plagued with that same problem. Division Two, when the Conference Carolinas is, is reinstated, will have 16 total conferences. So, I don't know how many teams you want in there, but say you have a 28-team pool, right? Following the current method, right? Seven regions, or four regions, seven teams per region, excuse me. If you keep the 28-team pool, you have 16 automatic bids if every conference gets an automatic bid. Conference Carolinas in their first year might not even get an automatic bid, right? And there might be a couple others that maybe you'd say don't. Even if they did, 16 automatic bids, humor me here, 2018 pool, that leaves at least 12 at-large bids. So now you win the conference, you're in. Fantastic. I think think that's a great idea. But there's 12 other spots for teams that are very quality teams that didn't win their conference but still get a shot at playing in the playoffs. And then the top, I don't know, top four seeds, top whatever seeds would still get a bio. You could still run the playoffs very similarly. It's just how you're selecting the teams and the criteria used in organizing the bracket, I think is the biggest thing. And then I think the biggest, maybe not proponent. What's the opposite of proponent? Not component. My vocab's not there tonight. But the biggest argument against this and you know what I maybe can understand a little bit, financials. Geographically, if you're scheduling games against teams that are further and further away, it costs more money. No shit. Division II football programs are not plagued by the same problem as Division III football programs, for the most part, right? This is scholarship-level football. You are putting forth a lot of money to your football program. So are Division III, by the way. It just goes into facilities and other things, right? It's just not in scholarships. I don't want to say anything there. But, you know, these Division III schools, not, not all of them, but there are uh, there are a lot of them that are smaller private institutions that can't afford to make these trips, whatever. I don't, I simply do not think, I know playoff budgets get opened up. Like this is very serious at this level. Like playoff budgets are totally separate from regular season budgets and you will get the funding to do this stuff. I I don't really humor that argument until there are some really cold, hard numbers put in front of me because being at a division two institution and working with teams that have gone on the national playoffs, not football team here, but other teams, uh, not an issue, right? You're going to get there. So I don't really find that argument very feasible. And I think for that reason, because we don't have so many conferences, right? 28 automatic bids in Division Three is ridiculous. This FCS format, we'll go back to it and talk a little bit, just close on it here. It would make a lot more sense. Then the in the FCS, it's actually not the top four, but it's the top eight national seeds receive the first round buys. So that doesn't really matter. It could be four, it could be eight. I don't know if it really, it could be, Freaking two for all it doesn't matter, but um, that's just how the FCS runs it. So, and they give a they give a really cool mock up in this article. If the FBS had adopted this playoff format this year, this would have been you know all the matchups and certain things like that. But it just makes so much more sense. And it comes down to this: this is my final thing I'll leave you with. The best football should be played in December. That's all it is. The best football should be played in mid December. It should be played in the semifinal in the championship game. And if it's not, someone fucked up because that team shouldn't be there or they got exposed or had some crazy injuries or something. Or it's because we didn't give the best teams a chance to get there and they met prematurely here instead of at the top. That's not a great analogy visually, but for you people listening, just go with it. 
I think that's it. Let me step physically off my soapbox. The NCAA is screwing over Division II football. Not very happy about it. Uh, from the viewership standpoint with Warner Brothers Productions and Huddle to the playoff selections, and apparently it's going to continue to plague the sport. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But we can transition. Switch gears over. Let's talk about the good in Division II football, and that was the national championship game. Let's talk about this D2 championship, right? I said it last week. I'll say it again. Colorado School of Mines, if you can't stop the dive, you best not get your ass off the bus. Guess what? They couldn't stop the dive. It's a lot easier said than done, though. I will give them that credit. When you have not prepared for a team like Harding all year, and now all of a sudden you have a week to prepare for this kind of matchup against a very quality football team, that is an extremely tall task. And you know what? I can't. I certainly can't blame them for not being 100% ready and prepared to take on uh, the anomaly that is the flex bone. But let's watch the kind of the opening of this game and kind of setting the tone early. John Matoka running for his life. We saw a lot of that in this one. The Harding defensive line, that unit was monster all day. And you can see him just banging him up once again. He gets a couple yards. Uh, they were having a field day, though, against what's been a really solid offensive line unit for Mines with the Upshaw Award winner, the tackle there. And five sacks from six different players in that D-line. One of them, or two of them, excuse me, being from the All-American, Nathaniel Wallace there, but there were a lot of other contributors wearing the All-White, which, by the way, those icy white uniforms for the Bisons. Sick. But here we go. Mines gets the ball. They're driving down the field. He starts to, Matoka, he starts to connect with some of these guys on the outside. The connection up the middle with McLeod, as good as ever, drives down to the three-yard line. Took him a couple plays here. They try and mess around with the QB run outside. Stuffed. They do it again, I believe, and get stuffed. Here you are. Uh, tries to stretch it out. That's not happening. They would eventually score here, though, on the left side of the end zone. And... Here it is. Right there, little pitch and catch, nothing too crazy. And so here we go. I'm like, okay, we got a ball game. I'm sitting on my couch, like, let's go. This is going to be fantastic. Back and forth kind of matchup. That's what I was expecting. Mine's a quality football team. That's what a lot of people were expecting. They were favored. So here we go. They kicked the extra point. That would have been it. That actually was it offensively for Colorado Mines. They had a lot of great plays, could not get shit done in the, in the red zone. Excuse me. This man, Dela Cruz, had a monstrous day for the Bisons. Like I said, if you cannot stop the dive, the midline, whatever you want to call it, you are going to have a tough day. They had some great outside run as well uh, from guys like uh, Braden Jell, like those kind of guys. And here's another one. I think this is Spicer here on the outside. We had the pleasure of having on the show earlier. And this squad was so dynamic. The Ordegger defense, I think, was seeing ghosts. They did not know what was coming. And Harding, you get the ball, and you're eating up the time of possession. You're eating up the clock. John Matoka is watching from the sidelines. And when that happens, you get a quarterback, you get an offensive play caller, a, a whole team that now is doing things that are uncharacteristic to themselves. They're doing things a little bit outside of the box and outside of what they would regularly do. You see the first touchdown from Harding there because they don't know how many possessions they're going to get. Right, You go to the sideline, this team goes on an eight-minute drive and drives all the way down to the field and scores on you. We don't know if we're going to touch the ball, depending on where you're at in the game, two more times or five more times. So when we have the ball now, we're getting a little bit crazy trying to do some things that we might not normally do because we're desperate. You're getting, you, put, you put a team into a little bit of a desperation mode when you can hold on to the ball for that long. But credit to Mines, they certainly did stay composed for the most part of it. Defensively, though, for Harding, you know, they generated an interception, which... I wouldn't have expected that off a guy like Matoka who has been so efficient this year. And they continued to just 
ram the line of scrimmage. Offensively, when you watch them move the ball here, you are seeing the line of scrimmage get pushed back multiple yards on each of these plays. That fourth down conversion, I'll, I'll play it one more time for you right here because this was a huge portion of the game. We're fourth down. Keelan Cole gives the ball off there, and we'll see. I do believe they gave that one to him. The fourth downs, right? Harding, that was one of their two fourth downs they attempted on the day, two for two. Mines, on the other hand, 0 for 3. And I think two of the three of those probably came in the red zone, potentially within the 10-yard line of the end zone. That's a great stat right there. Harding, when they needed to, got the plays, got the couple yards. Mines did not. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Consistently, Harding was just a much better football team in this one. And Mines, this team, too, that... If I'm not mistaken, led the country in sacks last year. This year, that might have been one of the biggest drop-offs for the one of the best squads in Division II football. They were tied for 15th for sacks this year, which, by the way, pretty fucking good still. Like, tied for 15th in sacks is good. They didn't have one in this game. Where we just talked about Harding had five sacks from six different guys. Mines was not uh, getting back there and making any tackles for loss. And Kobe, they're not going to get sacks. He doesn't drop back to pass. Yes, I know. I'm not an idiot, but I will actually, I'll have to double check. I don't know if they had tackles for loss in general. So sacks aside, right? Right here, there were two tackles for loss. So that's it. And that's tough. When you when you can't force this team to have any negative plays during the course of a game, you keep them on schedule and they keep churning and churning and churning. No sacks, two tackles for loss. That's not a recipe for success. So here you go. Great example. Mines completes a pass on the 10-yard line. You've got, what, third and two? And fourth and one. We go to the Wildcat. Why the hell are we taking John Matoka off the field? I don't know why I'm saying we, but as a fan of football, Coach Sturbeck, coach, whoever is in charge of calling that play, what are we doing? That was kind of my biggest problem with this Mines offense when it came to the red zone. Why are we taking him out of the game? He's the best player on the field. He's one of the, if not the best player in Division II football, at least over the last couple years, right? The Wildcats, great, especially when you have a guy like Landon Walker who's got a big frame on him, a very tough physical runner. He's great in the red zone, but with Landon Walker, you're telling the defense exactly what you're going to do. And, oh, you get an extra blocker. Not, not really, right? Not really, because he's still toting the rock. Quarterback's still toting the rock. I don't I don't really get that argument. Um, you're telling the defense exactly what you're going to do. The Harding defensive line, is they found out, is not the squad you want to do that to, right? That is not the squad you're going to be doing some wildcat with when it comes to short-yarded situations. That defensive line was stout. They had some big boys up there in that front four for the Bisons. And, you know, Matoka... For himself, to talk about him in a, in a positive light as well, it's not like he can't tote the rock. The dude has shown us time and time again, he's very savvy with the football in his hands when it comes to running the thing himself. And I think taking the ball out of his hands in those situations, they did it two or three different times, I was not a fan of it. Because at least when Matoka has the ball, he is a threat to throw the ball, right? He is a quarterback, last time I checked. Whether it be a jump pass or a little fake and then roll out, you know, you roll it out and then threaten with the pass and give him the option to run, like, there's so many things they could have done there. I was a big, uh, not a fan of the Wildcat. Here comes a home run shot here for the Bison. I wanted to replay that one because I was rambling. Check out this one, man. Uh, I think it's the play after this guy. I believe that's Braden Jay on the outside for uh, the Bisons here. Boom. Blockers get out there. Offensive line getting to the second level, getting hands on those backers, and then it's a foot race to the end zone of McKinney. And number seven's winning that one uh, just about every single day. 
That's that's textbook, dude. Look at the blocking out there. Mine's just playing assignment football. The contained guys out there on the outside trying to force that back in. His help, though, is far too slow scraping over the top. You know why? Because they're honoring the dive. They're honoring everything that happens at the heart of that Harding offense. And now when you have to honor that because they're gashing you and gashing you up the middle, bam, end around, boom. It's tough, dude. As someone who's played against an offense not nearly as talented at Harding, but uh, the same style, there's one of Nathaniel Wallace's sacks on the day. It's very tough to be assignment motivated throughout the entirety of this one. And this is just where it started to slip away. Like 28 7 now, mine's driving. Oh, here we go. And uh, third and 11. Matoka connects, but they're short, and now they're fourth and five. This is a pivotal point. You know, start of the third quarter, you're already down multiple three possessions here, and you turn the ball over. And now Harding has a chance to just eat more clock. Tick, 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 all the way down the field. It's a killer. And to be on that sideline for mines, I can only imagine these guys were just defeated. Because you sit there and just watch this defense go to war and try and battle. And then Keelan Cole is going to go and drop one. Drop a dime in a bucket to the tight end there. And that's got to be a super defeating feeling, man. These guys are gashing us on the ground. And then he lofts one up and it's a completed pass for 25 yards or so. And... Ah, tough, tough day to be an ore digger. And I think at the end of the day, there's a lot for them to be very proud about, right? This is a team that has made it to the national championship twice, has overcome a lot of adversity, has won the RMAC in consecutive years, had a Harlan Hill Trophy Award winner, a Gene Upshaw Award winner. There's so many, you know, first team all region, other selections. But outside of that, there's so much to be proud for for this Mines team. But it goes back to the playoffs, man, the structure of the playoffs. Should this have been the championship game? I don't know. Is it different because it's the flex bone and it's kind of an anomaly? I don't know. I'm not a wizard, but my observation is that this was not a championship-level football game, and that's what sucks about it. These are two very good football teams, two of the best in the country. With that being said, this was not a championship-level football game. and It's just tough. It's, it's really tough, and that's kind of the... The major cliff notes on this one, I guess I can go over some kind of leading stat leaders for for both these squads. And there were some guys on, on mine's defense that were balling the hell out, man. Adrian Moreno had 14 tackles on the day, along with Jane Healy with 12. Those guys were flying around the field. Uh, mine's receiving core, Max McLeod still had a fucking day. 14 catches, 153 yards, but no scores for the stud wide receiver. There were a couple other guys that were very quiet, but him and John Matoka have such a great rapport. They are so fun to watch uh, play football. So, you know, it's going to be sad to not see that anymore, honestly, on Saturdays. But closing this one off, Blake Dela Cruz, 27 carries, 212 yards, man. That's crazy. Braden Jay had that long one for 73 yards. He had three touchdowns on the day. After one of them, he was counting with his fingers. I loved it. 161 yards for him and a couple other guys that had some major contributions as well. Uh, Keelan, uh, Cole Keelan had uh, Keelan, excuse me, had some some great stuff going on. He's just a great facilitator of that offense, and that's a wrap, man. That's a wrap in the D2 year. There's a lot of things to, to kind of sit down and, and mull over, but... As far as we're concerned, that's it for D2. This year, we had a lot of great stuff planned for the offseason. Let's switch over to Division Three with Jimmy Martin. <laughs> Division Three gave us our 50th Stag Bowl, and it also gave us probably the best game that I personally have watched all season. I say that um, in terms of just excitement and competitiveness and just the fact that I was literally standing for most of the game. Here to talk about it with me, another man who thoroughly enjoyed it. Jimmy, dude. That one was electric. I think it was just about everything we could have asked for out of a championship. Yeah, certainly so. And uh, being that 
you know, we talked about this a little bit on the show on Monday last week, but um, so the over this game was 89, right? And <laughs> the spread was North Central was a 17 point favorite, yeah, in this one. So that was one of the biggest spreads of the entire playoff plate to begin with. But so I was halftime seven to three. I looked around, I'm like, who who decided this game should be over under 89? <laughs> Obviously, an absolute explosion of offense in the second half, accounting for I want to say. 67 points in the second half and one in the fourth quarter as well. So yeah. Just, and then uh, North central man in the red zone in the first half, just cannot get it done. And they had no problem driving down really the length of the field, which is probably the craziest part. I think in all of that is their offense from their own 20 to the opposing 20 lights out, right? Like absolutely have yeah. no problems, but then they get to the red zone. And I think, when you talk about the Cortland defense, is that just where, like, literally Ben don't break is probably the best example of that we've seen in a while, dude. Yeah, talk about a direct definition. If you look up a picture in the dictionary of Ben <laughs> don't break, it's just a picture of a red dragon. That's all it is. <laughs> that was huge. And Coach Spencer had yeah. talked about, you know, going into half before half, like, this very well could have been 21 to three. And yeah, it could have been like, you see the plays they rip off here. They get right down to the red zone and for whatever reason, just can't punch it in. They did uh Cortland's defensive line and the linebacking core. That front seven did a great job of limiting Lanin's ability to scramble. Cause we've seen the Gallardi winner, his ability to get outside the pocket and make plays with his legs. They did a great job of limiting him. Um, that played really sound assignment football, kept him contained. But uh, I mean, that one right there, the ball off D'Angelo Hardy's hands, that first possession down there, just like maybe two feet, feet lower and that's a touchdown to open things yeah. up for north central everything the margin of error was just right here dude yeah and that and that that's just a this is brutal you know you look back there's just someone everyone says oh the two-point conversion play no, yep. dude. Like, just because it was the end of the game that's hey, what we'll get there hey, we'll get there so, i know there's so many little plays you can pick out throughout the entire game i thought a really intriguing stat so scored seven points in the first half they ran for over 200 yards in the first half dude Sacco was having a game. You see one of his long runs here, and he's busting off these incredibly like solid runs. And I think that's obviously a credit to their offensive line unit as well. We've talked a lot about that front five. But you see here, Cortland getting back, getting pressure. Lanon has not seen this kind of pressure from a defensive line unit very much, if at all, this season. I don't believe, especially when you're behind that front five. They're able to get back there, even with the strip here and the turnover in the red zone. Just another one of those ways they were stopping the Cardinals when it came to time. And uh, generating turnovers was huge. How about the man, Zach Boys? He busts off this 28-yard run. The announcer calls it a grown man run, and that was just the first of many for number 12 uh, also in the red and white. Yeah, so not too often do you lead the team in passing and rushing, uh, and he did both of those things. 349 passing yards, five touchdowns. Also ran for 123 I mean, and Zach's, Zach's quite an athlete, but I was not expecting him to run for 123 yards against the North Central Cardinals. No, not I mean, at all. And I think Lanin's ability to get out of the pocket and make plays with his legs has been talked about definitely a bit more than, uh, than Zach's. And I think part of that, too, is look at their receiving core for Cortland. The, the stats that those guys finish with, guys like Lapp. And, um, you know, you look at... Burgess, who finished with 11 catches on the oh, day yeah. for 134, oh, two yeah. tuds. Uh, dude, Lap with another tud. He had that long one down the sideline, two for 75. And then, Iadivio, eight catches, oh, yeah. 95 yards, two like, tuds. I, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Know. I love that. I love yeah. that. Uh, they, what did he say? They called him Joe, Joey Cutlets. Yeah. I can't believe he's a freshman, dude. That's wild. Is he really? 
Yeah, I think I believe he's either a redshirt freshman or a true freshman. So yeah, Pretty but good. I mean, talk about that defense, too. Portland. Obviously, like they just they got it done in the first half. That was huge for them. Yeah, I mean, anytime you hold North Central to seven points, they actually North Central had scored twenty-one or more in every first half the entire season before the championship game. That's great. That's stat that dude. And it it was yeah. like they're so used to getting up on these teams, and that's where it came into question last week. And that's a credit to North Central when you go against a team like Wartburg. They were able to come back, albeit for a very short period, being behind. Um, they were able to come back and get that win against a super quality opponent. North Central's defense also stepping up in the red zone in the first half. They were playing out of their minds as well because you look at the Cortland offense, what they've been able to do against teams like Alma and like Randolph-Macon last week and this playoff run that they've had. And to limit them, you know, we talk about limiting North Central's offense, limiting this Red Dragon offense was an impressive feat uh, in itself. And um, Cortland's defense, I mean, they got going. I think their secondary might have been a little suspect at times in the open field, but that front seven, that core for them, when it got down to crunch time, was huge. They had three sacks on the day, a couple more tackles for loss. Jaden Martinez was flying around the field. He finished with 10 tackles to, to lead that Red Dragon defense. Man. Hold on, you're, you're, muted. you're muted, Jim. You're muted. Can't hear you, can't hear you. Still nothing. So North Central, they eventually get their first score here. Nice little play with only 57 seconds left. Like, it took them that long to find their way into the end zone to even get the first points of the contest. Now, for me, though, big piece, you always talk about the first, you know, the, the minute or couple minutes going into the half and then the couple minutes coming out of the half. Cortland, I guess, technically wins that. They get the field goal uh, to at least have some points on the board going into halftime, and they were the first to score coming out of half. Um, and I don't believe, did they start with the ball after halftime? Mm, yeah i think they did yeah, yeah. so they would go down yeah. and score and um that was big for me that swing right there was was very big for me to score going into the half and to be the first ones to score coming out of the half um and i again i imagine too like their mindset going into halftime not that they thought they couldn't compete with these guys right they obviously have all the confidence in the world but to think that and then to do it for a whole half has to be a very different thing so the confidence going into the second half was absolutely huge for those guys i have to imagine Oh yeah, and absolutely. So I was actually watching that post game interview with uh, with Coach. Yep. And you know, he just, all he really said was like the, the general message was like we have to believe in ourselves. Like that's the only thing. And like once you have an entire team rallied around one idea, man, like things get a whole lot easier. So uh, they they knew they could do it the whole time, and obviously they showed us that as well. So. Yeah, man, and I wanted to show. This off, this catch from Burgess. You remember the toe drag in the corner of the end? Oh, yeah. I was just I was saying that earlier. Yeah. Pump fake from boys I... over to Burgess, yeah, and he yeah. gets the left foot like barely, but it was clear. He got that down. Yeah, the call on the it. field was that it was incomplete. They go back, review that thing. 
I mean, talk about if that one doesn't go, and now we are certainly in a very different contest. They make the right call. By the way, Burgess knew before anyone. He was celebrating way before they even made any kind of – they must have came over and told Coach, and he relayed that to him almost immediately because the boys were getting ready to go like way before we got any news. I thought that was funny. But um, that catch was huge because they take the lead. They kind of put the weight on a North Central here, and they got to go do something, which – they would because it's the second half. They go down and respond uh, almost immediately. And 65 com- combined points in the second half, dude. I think you said, what, 41 just in the fourth quarter alone? Yep, yep. Fireworks. Yeah. I mean, we knew we knew at some point that the offenses would start turning it up a little bit. It just took them a little while to get warmed up. And then, obviously, just all gas from there. Not a lot of, not a lot of defense in the second half, as we saw. So. The ball, the J.J. lap down the sideline. He's been a home run hitter for them, I think, just about all year. Only had two catches on the day, which is kind of un- unbelievable. But when you have other guys around him that make massive plays, he's good for one long one just about every single contest these guys play. The receiving core for Cortland, I don't think you can give him enough credit. It, they've got a dog throwing it to him, but they're still hauling in some insane grabs. Yeah, you know, Burgess, Ivito, and Lap. You know, Lap, that 65-yarder, as we were saying earlier, that was doesn't, he doesn't have that. He only has one catch for 10 yards. That's yeah. kind of uncharacteristic for him. But I'm sure North Central is probably keying on him pretty hard because he's just a big playmaker. But then when you key on one other guy, Burgess, that goes off for 12 catches. I, I Vito has two touchdowns. It's like, it's one of those things where you're picking your poison, like literally picking your yes. poison. It's like you close one guy up, these other guys are going to be wide open. So. Oh, that might be uh, that might be the the poll coming in for the ratings. That's yeah, what it's called. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know who's calling my house. I don't know. If, we don't. don't hey, we're not, uh, we're not big time enough to get those calls yet. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what, yet. you know, when, when boys came on the show just a couple weeks ago, he talked about that. Like these teams are keying in on JJ and that opens up the passing game for everyone else. And what that does for their offense, I think can't be understated because even though he's being dialed up on like that defensively from a scheming point, uh, he still do for a home run shot just about every time that dude is on the field. But uh, the connection between the receivers, the rapport he has with them, especially with some of them being younger guys that haven't been around as long. You said it, dude. Like, he was obviously the best quarterback on the field, and that was the best quarterback performance we've seen in D3 all year. Yeah, and uh, and also, as long as we're talking about the post-game interview, the, one of the first things Coach had said was, uh, Zach Boys should be the Galliardi winner. And I honestly, I agree with that. I'm not taking the like I said. I'm not taking anything away from Lou Wayne. The kid is an incredible player. He'll be back in Super North Central. I have a feeling they'll be back in the championship game as well. But man, oh man, the way that kid, the way that boy's just the, the way the ball jumps out of his hand. I just, I don't know if I necessarily see that from Lane. I think he's a little bit different style of quarterback. He's a guy that can run for a hundred and throw for three hundred. You know what I mean? And but boys, man, he the way he just stands in the pocket. I think the one throw in particular that I remember, I just it's it's teach tape. So. It was it was 31-31. I think it was like, I don't know if it was first or second down, but they're probably like the 30-ish yard line. Takes a slide step, maybe a three-step drop, and just fires a glance shot right over the middle of the field. Gets the first first down of the drive and just man oh man. That was that that play set the tone for the whole drive. And then obviously they went down and took the game winning score to go up 38-31. And then yep. the rest, you know, we saw was just a miraculous finish. So. I just found it. So yeah, right here off the play action, just the zip right across the middle. 
And like you said, that sets up a huge drive for them. And like you talked about his poise in the pocket. You don't see a lot of that. And Lanin is a guy that gets very crafty. And uh, we see that from Boyce here, right, too. The way he gets away from pressure just a few plays later. That was fourth and five. It looks like they might get him in the backfield. He shrugs off a defender and comes forward and gets probably 10 to 12 yards on that rush. The quick game for Cortland was working extremely well. They had a lot of short game dialed up, and then they would uh, – the double moves must have been big for them because you see uh, boys throwing that shoulder on the pump fake quite a few times. So I didn't really see the receivers on many of those, but they had to have been dialing up some potentially some double moves and some other deep options for them. Yeah, which is honestly kind of taking a pretty big risk being that North Central has a really good defensive line. Yes. And when when there's risk, risk also brings reward. And we saw them get rewarded by taking a little bit of some deep shots, double moves, et cetera, as you mentioned before. So. Yeah, man, and, and to talk about the Gallardi Trophy a, a little bit too, it's it's very interesting, but those ballots are turned in, I believe, right around the second round of the playoffs, mm-hmm. right? Which is just the way it is. Part of me is like, if you're going to do it then, you may as well just do it at the end of the regular season. Yeah, and... Um, Which would make sense, I, I mean, think, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I don't think boys is too upset. I think he'd rather have... No, I think he's, hey, I think he's all right. I think he's cool. I think he's doing okay. I think he's doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think and he's just with that being said, also, I think Landon would trade his Gagliardi for a national title trophy in Agreed. Like a second. So. Agreed. Yeah, and this was uh, the guys on the Around the Nation podcast from D3Football.com had talked about this is the first championship win for a Northeast team since, I believe, 1991, and the last time a team from the Northeast had even played in the championship until uh, since 1999. So shout out those guys. They do a, a great show over there, so be sure to, to check them out. But um, it, it was unprecedented for – this, this side of the bracket to win this year because you talk about the left side of the bracket with teams like North Central and Lacrosse and Wartburg and Whitewater and you go down the list, I think a lot of people rode off this side of the bracket unless your team was wearing purple uniforms and <laughs> that might have come back to bite them in the ass because the, yeah. the social media folks were out in arms before this one and with some lopsided score predictions. And admittedly, I was going to take North Central to win as well. I, I, my prediction was that they'd win uh, by 10 points, I do believe. I'll have to rummage up my like actual score prediction, but um, mm-hmm. they proved me wrong along with a lot of other people, and I, I couldn't be happier for them. So, yeah. I do believe you have my receipt of my score prediction. I do. And would you like me to find had it? North Cent- had North Central kick the extra point, tie the game at 38. Pre-game, I predicted 41-38 North Central. And it was an extra point away from being, like, so possible from happening. Because, you know, obviously overtime and then being – if Corlin would have been scored and then North Central would have just kicked the field goal, I could have yeah. had an exact score. Forty-one thirty-eight thriller, calling it at six oh seven p.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, I'm the I'm a D three insider for a reason, baby. I think I I got a pretty good grasp on uh, what's gonna happen in a game. So <laughs> yeah, and you know what? It's that's good. I think my my understanding, especially at the D3 level, has has come a long way this year, certainly. Um, and some performances to certainly not be left out. D'Angelo Hardy, we see him right there. Still very much that dude. He had some huge catches down the field. They let him tote the rock out of the backfield a couple times. That was big. Uh, but let's talk about the two-point attempt, Jim. Uh, I don't hate the decision to go for two. I don't love it. But obviously, the play call, I think, is where a lot of people got tripped up with this North Central offense. Yeah, so I went back and kind of like watched the replay, and they didn't. Even, they did not have numbers on that side. Like yeah. they were, 
they were six on five in the favor of the defense. And I think what they were trying to do, and again, I could be completely off. So I don't know if you remember this, but they were running a play, and before they could finish the play, they called a timeout and like speed to the play. Yes. They're rolling out to the right. You know, there's a either wide open receiver or landing or landing could have just walked it in, called a timeout, and I think they try to get a little too cute, being like to try to like fool them to run it left or something. But here's what I'll say about that call. I I was Brad Spencer, one of the best coaches in the entire country, not even just division three. This is his first game he ever lost as a head coach, right? I love quarterback power. It's more it's my favorite play in a playbook. You know, I I, I loved it. It was my bread and butter all through high school, everything. I don't like it on a two-point conversion. I that's just that's just me. And I love it on second and goal, first and goal, third and goal, fourth and goal. Sure. I just uh, I don't know. I'd rather just give the ball to Chuck Coleman, that huge running back to have. Like yes. that guy's what, like 230 pounds? Like again, I'm not taking away from Landon. You give the ball to your best player and the, the game's on the line, sure, no problem. I just I mean, I'm sure and I'm sure he's probably thinking this as well. Maybe just it's it's almost like and again, they didn't throw the ball, but it's almost kind of like the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. It's like you have this humongous power back who's been having a great game. You're in for like 95 yards. Just give the big fellow the ball. I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. I, There's a weird again, I'm, not, I'm not sitting yeah. here saying like I would have gotten, you know what I mean, but I don't know. There's a That's weird just, balance, too, because I talked about earlier in the D2 championship yeah. game when Mines is taking out Matoka in favor of a Wildcat setup. Why are you taking your best player out of the game? Matoka can run the ball. He also has the threat of throwing the ball. When you put Landon Walker in, a big body, and you know that against this Harding defensive line that you've not been able to move all day, not exactly the case for North Central. Very different situations. But, yeah, it was it was very interesting. And, and hearing, um, you know, I'm blanking on Cortland's head coach. Is it Fitzpatrick? No. I, I see his face in my head right now. I just can't remember his name. I'm totally blanking. But hearing him talk after the game, right, and, you know, he made a very good point about, you know, when someone comes up – I'll find it, Jim. Don't worry. It's Fitzpatrick, uh, Kurt Fitzpatrick. Um, and when somebody comes out for a two-point like that, the timeout ended up being very critical because they start to run that play and you spook them with the timeout and make them change or maybe go back and rethink their call and come out in something else – that timeout could have proved to be, well, no pun intended, but very timely for the the Red Dragons because that goes and they and they switch it up and the play call for North Central. So I will uh, I'll pull it up so the people can take a look at it one more time here. And they score, they have the chance to set the scene, they have the chance to tie it up and maybe force overtime with a kick. The direct snap to Lanin, he bounces it outside and just about every single red dragon is on that side of the field ready to take him down. Uh, this was ridiculous. And I'll give it uh, one more time here. Like, I don't even know how to describe it, dude. This was the game. Like, obviously there's so many things that lead up to this man, but this was, I was freaking out. Like this was just a ridiculous, the, the anticipation and everything that kind of led up to this moment was incredible. Yeah, I mean, they had, they had like half of Menominee, Wisconsin on their feet in my buddy's garage watching the game. We were all proud of it. <laughs> Because, you know, we were all cheering for Corbin. I mean, I, I know I was. But, uh, man, oh, man. I, I just love to see the underdog win. Yeah, so. I hear that. I hear that. that was, it was awesome. It was great. It was great. Oh, for sure. But, yeah, with that said, they wrap it up. They bring home the ship. They attempted onside, recovered up front by the Red Dragons, and, and that would spell out victory for, for Cortland. Boys, they run a few plays, and then they just kind of knee it out, take that thing down, and – it was just it was a very fun game to watch and and just just to be a part of as far and just in the fact that we cover it, uh, but <laughs> really, very awesome. And boys is another year, which is going to be very interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, look, <clears throat> obviously look for Cortland to make another deep playoff push. But uh, I'm sure I'm sure their buddies uh, over in Ithaca are not too happy about them taking home the crown. So. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure Ithaca will be coming out firing for that. Was that the Little Jug or something? What was it Cortica called? Jug. Cortica Jug. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Cortland, Ithaca. Yep. Cortica. That's how you, that's how you remember. Oh. But yeah, yeah. I know the post game with with boys who again we've had the pleasure of having on here. Great dude. Um, he wins that. It's the most outstanding player. Why is it just not the MVP? No idea. What are we, what Don't are we ask. Me. I don't know. <laughs> what are we doing? Um, I don't know. Yeah, but otherwise, we can look at uh, the final AFCA rankings. How about that? We'll close out on that, dude. Sure. Sure. Um, they update update these. Excuse me. After the. Playoffs obviously conclude, and here is the tweet from the AFCA. You see the top five there. Cortland, obviously, number one. Number two, North Central. And then it gets interesting. Wartburg, Lacrosse, and UW-Whitewater come in at three, four, and five. That's what we talked about earlier. The left side of the bracket, incredibly <laughs> stacked. And the Coaches Association, and as, as well as the D3Football.com poll, they both seem to agree with that pretty wholeheartedly. Yeah, and I think I'm going to agree with them as well. I mean, yep. I mean, look, Whitewater lost to Wartburg. Warburg lost to North Central. Lacrosse lost to North Central. And look at the years they had, obviously, the resume up to that point, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm a big Wyatt guy, you know, obviously. I wouldn't have been, like, totally against having Lacrosse at three, honestly. But, again, Warburg went a little bit further in the tournament, so you got to give it to Warburg. But, man, oh, man, that Lacrosse offense was something else, dude. That was an electric offense. I just – I would have liked to see the Cross and Warburg matchup. I know they matched up last year in the playoffs, and yep. Warburg did them. But you know, I would have, I wouldn't have been shocked to see the Cross at three. But no, and, and seeing that in person, dude, I I don't blame you because that was very fun to watch. And looking at the um, kind of the rest here of those, like the teams that are rounding out the top ten and so on, as we just kind of quickly wrap it up. Uh, We've got Randolph-Macon, Alma, Johns Hopkins, Mount Union. So there's the rest of your top tier uh, right side of the bracket. And then Grove City at number 10. You've got Trinity, Aurora, Wheaton, Susquehanna, who had some very quality wins. Actually, the only team to beat the national champion, uh, which is kind of uh, wild. And they would go on to lose to Grove City, which, again, we're one kick away from maybe seeing Alma or Grove City in the actual championship. So... There are so many crazy things that went on. Endicott, Whitworth, Harden-Simmons, obviously coming out of the ASC. They finished 17th, which has been a very interesting year for them. And they've kind of seen a mass exodus in the portal. It's going to be very interesting to see what that Cowboy team looks like a year from now. Ithaca, Muhlenberg, Union, DePaul, St. John's, Barry, Linfield, John Carroll. That rounds out the top 25. Linfield finishing with, um, you know, not even making the playoffs is, is kind of a crazy piece from over there that's a team that has kind of staked their claim in the national tournament and but otherwise i think i agree with the list no not too many uh crazy surprises huh yeah my only my only complaint did you say bethel was ranked i don't believe so no st john's was correct um yes okay so my only complaint not even a complaint just something i wanted to bring up yep so platt though had the seventh best defense in Division Three. Won the Isthmus Bowl convincingly. They blew out Augustana. I, for one, was I mean, again. I'm a Wyatt guy, so this is obviously why I'm saying this. But Platteville is a top 25 football team in Division Three. There's no reason why they should be off this list. But again, I don't make these lists. This is just my opinion. But I was pretty surprised. And I know a lot of uh, 
why at Twitter as well was a little bit surprised because typically you would see the Isthmus Bowl champion at least at 25. Yep. I know they're receiving votes. I think they were actually the first team out, so I guess that's fair. Yep. But uh, that's my that was my only that was my only thing I had to really add to that. Hell yeah. But it's been a great year, dude. I mean, we're going to have a lot more stuff coming out uh, from us. Our show certainly does not end when the season ends, but uh, it's been a, it's been fun to follow. We got a lot of good stuff planned, brother. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for appointing me to this position, Kobe. I appreciate Absolutely, you. All right, man. I'll see you. Thanks All again. Right. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one, Bob. All right. Kaiser, Northwestern in another really exciting championship game, unlike the Division Two one. We already talked about that. But this one uh, was very back and forth. It looked like might have gotten away from the Red Raiders. They come back, make this one interesting. It was certainly a fun game to watch today on a Monday. Matt, tell me about what the hell's up with this random slate on a Monday game <laughs> on ESPN3. I could barely turn the thing on my TV. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, welcome to the NAIA. That's yes. how we do things around yes. here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm honestly impressed because in years past, it's been on ESPN Plus. So the fact that it got bumped up to yeah. one of the, the main networks was pretty sick. I can't lie. Which is got crazy because that actually made it too. more difficult for me to find. I have ESPN Plus, so I was like, <laughs> okay, let me just flip it on. No, yeah. ESPN3 also has a de- dedicated channel on Spectrum. So I have to like, mm-hmm. oh, dude. <laughs> oh, dude. But you did see it. You did I, get I to could it, see it. Yeah, could see okay. It. There you go. Good. Yeah. That's the important stuff. Um, you did miss a, a pretty explosive beginning to this game, though, might I add. Uh, I yes. guess I could start by saying that. Uh, Northwestern kicks the ball off to Kaiser to start the game. Touchback, normal stuff. One play, Jaden Meisinger, 75 yards. Touchdown. Hello. <laughs> right away. Um, and I think we should not go any further without mentioning that uh, Meisinger easily was the player of the game. 261 rushing yards. Couple thuddies to his name. Yeah. He was pretty much unstoppable this dude, entire game. <laughs> he almost eclipsed 1,400 in the year with today's performance. But the dude is like, I mean, he's an all, he's de- textbook, like all purpose back. He's physical, mm-hmm. but he can get outside. We saw the speed on that one that I just showed there. Like you talk about the opening tud, and I mean, he really does it all for them. And they, like, with that being said, bringing in Burnett, like they have a great tandem going on mm-hmm. there. Um, not as much of a flashy back he is, obviously being a more of a red zone guy, but. Man, they both looked really good. And then here's that kind of questionable safety. I'll have to play that one again. But talk me through that, dude. To start this game off, it was just hectic as hell. Yeah, there was just so much, I feel like, that went on during this game. And then the beginning of, uh, it was either the end of the first half or the beginning of the second half. Like, there was a weird kick. I I, I don't even know. I can't even explain it to you. No. It's just like, it's such a blur in my mind because I just could not process what was happening um there were some weird ones in this game i'm not gonna lie to you um there are a lot of explosive plays though i think we talked about it last week for sure in this one that northwestern really likes to get in rhythm you know they kind of do the dink and dunk downfield they're very efficient northwestern honestly had to get chunk plays big plays to even stay in this one yeah kaiser's defense came to play they did, man, and their uh, their front there defensively was so good all day long. Mm-hmm. You saw the the first clip of uh, not was actually wasn't a safety, but uh, I think they actually you know for this offense, especially in the first half, man, limited the big plays like big time. They were not letting them get chunk yards. They were making them fight and earn all those yards. And I think mm-hmm. before we go any further, talk about the man under center for Kaiser. We haven't heard his name called a whole lot this year. Yeah, so um, obviously you talked with uh, Bryce Beasley last week. Great guy. Love that guy. Um, Was not the starting quarterback in this game because of an injury. 
So we had Justin Wake come in, who QB2 this year, obviously with the Shea Spencer thing, I guess technically you could look at him as QB3. I don't know. Just kind of a weird situation. But a transfer from Southwest Baptist University, senior, like we have just seen nothing of this guy. But he got it done. He actually was really good for them. He was, you know, taking on that game manager role that he really needed to step into. I was about to throw that out there (laughs) just to trigger some people because that's been – it just – that phrase and that argument resurfaces every couple of months. And, shit, Mm -hmm. if he's a game manager, I want him on my team because he wasn't making incredibly costly mistakes. He was running their offense efficiently. And when you have a backfield and an offensive line like that that's moving bodies, like what what do you want? Who do you want out there? You know what I mean? Exactly. And he also, not to mention, did have 51 yards rushing. So yep. he like contributed on the ground with big chunk plays. He did throw two picks, but one of them was just an amazing play yeah. uh, by the Northwestern yep, DB in the quarter of the end zone. And, you know, you know, numbers don't jump out at you, but I can promise you he did plenty. And especially when you have, uh, you know, like we said, Meisinger going for 262, 261, whatever it was, yeah. averaging 12 yards a carry. Um, but even then, like uh, Filler, um, Filler, no. God, what's his name? <laughs> Who? Um, Wendell, sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Wendell Fillard, uh, number zero, their punt returner. Also DB. That it's guy done. went absolutely crazy. Um, <laughs> even on defense, like just sealing the edge, showing off his athleticism. I've been singing his praises for the past couple weeks. And uh, they all came to play. That front seven, I cannot gush enough about for Kaiser. Like, the game plan was to go in there and disrupt what Northwestern had going on. They love rhythm. They love being, you know, picking away at defenses. They weren't able to do that. Jalen Gramstead had to make a lot of plays up on the fly, which he was perfectly capable of handling. We should mention too, like, yes, he had almost 300 yards passing, two touchdowns He's through the crafty air. And also, shit. yeah, 90 yards rushing on the ground. He was, he was playing like the player of the year, which he was named. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, almost like. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense. Interesting for me, we talk about this offense for Kaiser and looking at just this still frame right here, the typical front for this Northwestern defense, and you got Kaiser, and they're just in a basic spread with a running back off shotgun or like mm-hmm. a, you know, whatever you call it. Uh, like the, man, I'm totally blanking on the sidecar, like a sidecar type deal. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, Northwestern, and this was pretty typical for at least, you know, most of this game. Three guys with their hand in the dirt mm-hmm. against a running back tandem that is absolutely carving you up. You've got three guys with their hand in the dirt and then two linebackers that are playing relatively shallow at about maybe four yards. So mm-hmm. not pretty typical. And it's just soft to me. And I know that's they've, they've gotten here. They've obviously done a lot of things right. But again, from an outside perspective and someone who's played against fronts like this, you love this shit. You got a mm-hmm. big offensive line, just massive bodies up there. Not the most athletic individuals i think watching them play they're not having these guys do too much but i think they work around that they have these guys get double teams on those three down linemen they're getting to the second level relatively quickly they're open up lanes uh for those backs coming out of the backfield and and they were very efficient in doing that and um, i wanted to highlight one of the the better throws for uh for wake here he dropped this one in a bucket dude if you remember they're up <laughs> seven nothing and the yeah. one you had texted me about almost hauled it in here in the uh back corner of the end zone i think it's this next play but he certainly was was flexing the actually a little bit and then had some of the takeaways a little bit later. Um, here it is right here. It's like dropping the back right corner of the end zone, go up for it, and just lost it on the way down. But 14 yeah. zip right there. They go down and score anyways, I do believe. But that would have been, yeah, here you go. I'll do it myself. But <laughs> yeah, man. Amazing great. I mean, that was, that was only the second time I've watched him play. I've uh, been these being these last two weeks. Obviously, I'd seen like the stats before, but obviously – looking mm-hmm. and watching the game is different than looking at a box score. He's fun to watch. 
he's really fun to watch. And even when he had to get crafty, when they were out of rhythm, like he was making stuff work. There was one where he looked like Patrick Mahomes. Like he like ran to the left, ducked two sacks, like ran down the middle of the field and threw like a, a cross body, yes. like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 15 yard pass to his tight end or whatever, or his running back. It was insane. Um, but yeah, it just, it was very obvious that Northwestern was taken aback. They were not really comfortable on offense. They weren't able to get that hum going off the bat. Um, and Kaiser really just pre- uh, preyed on that. Like truthfully, yeah. they were, they smelled blood in the water early and they struck and obviously Jalen Gramstead did everything he could to bring it back. But man, that Kaiser team is pretty good. <laughs> Dude, they are. They're, <laughs> they're I guess I was good. telling you, man, they're, they're very fun to watch. And like you said, I think it starts with getting Gramstead off, you know, off rhythm, keeping the pressure on him. And he is crafty, but damn it, that's when you start making errant decisions, making uh, some uncharacteristically bad throws in some of those situations. And uh, credit to the Northwestern OC, I don't know uh, his name, but tried to, to maybe try to get him to settle down. I think they resorted to that quick game, maybe a little more. You're talking mm-hmm. of like little spacing, mesh concepts, yes. uh, hitches, those kind of things. Just to get some quick completions, uh, some screens. And even on those, like, they're getting back there so quick. He is, I think he was just in the back of his head. His timer was going a little bit quicker than usual. They talk about that timer when you're in the pocket. His was on Mm -hmm. overdrive today, and it showed. uh, I think he was rushing some of those throws, which we haven't seen a whole lot of that from him, a little bit more calculated. And I also did not realize the dude wasn't a quarterback until last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My (laughs) gosh. So... Take everything I just said with like four grains of salt. Yeah, <laughs> he's doing pretty well for himself. That's really um, fucking impressive. Yeah, he's an insane athlete. I think too what they what Northwestern really lacked was on the ground. Obviously, Connor McQuillan had a good day receiving almost ninety yards and a touchdown to his name. But yeah, and the red hair, by the way. Yes, dyed the hair red. Respect it. Yeah, it looked great. Um, nine attempts for ten yards, though. Yeah, that's that's a presence you really need to compliment Jalen because obviously Jalen is going to run for a lot, but he's going to get those big plays through the ground. He's not going to be, you know, carrying the rocket beat consistent and gashing away at defenses in the same way a running back would. Yep. And, you know, again, it's kind of a tale of two halves, but in that first half, the man who wasn't making a lot of plays, you saw the one big catch there, but Michael Story, a guy that's gotten yeah. a lot of pub the last couple of weeks, did a good job of limiting him. In the second half, he caught a couple more uh, balls, and he finished with a pretty good stat line, Matt, six for 121. Didn't have a score, but I think mm-hmm. he'll take that on the on the big stage. Absolutely, but I think, too, there are a couple uncharacteristic drops. Northwestern, yep. I feel like, was uncharacteristically undisciplined or at least less discipline than we have seen them yep, in weeks past. You. And, you know, hey, you know, it's the national title. Nerds are getting to you. I, I get it. But, like, this is also a Northwestern team that, like, you were in this game last year. You are in this situation. And there's always new parts to teams. But at the same time, you know, got to be, gotta be ready. If you would have told me before this one, or I guess if I, I flip it on you, if I would have told mm-hmm. you before this one, the two leading receivers for Kaiser would have two catches and three catches for 45 and 37 yards, respectively, what would you have said? I would have said, okay, so they've run for like 800 yards already. <laughs> <laughs> because that's basically what it boiled down to. You'd be damn close. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Northwestern just had no answer for the, the rushing attack. That was 373. That's, that's legit. Insane. Absolutely insane. It's um, no harding, but it's damn close. It's damn close, I'll say. And this is this is out of like a modern offense too, yeah, which yeah. I think is super impressive. You know, it's not built for the run per se, but they do it super well. Um, I mean, yeah. Northwestern's defense is, like we've talked about, disciplined. They fill gaps well. They know their assignments. 
that front line from Kaiser was just getting enough push on him. You know, Meisinger was reading his his blockers very well. Yeah, when they get him it's, out in space there, I mean, he's always almost like outrunning some of his blockers. That dude moves, yeah. uh, and it's it's tough to get him down. But, again, Extremely Kaiser shifty. with four sacks on the day, like those numbers are huge. Um, April Maddox, go get two of those. He had six mm-hmm. tackles. Forced yeah. fumble as well on one of those. That was huge. I believe that was when he came around and batted it out. Like that was a, that was a big yeah. time. Yeah, towards the there, end of the so. first half, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're looking at second quarter here, three minutes left, Kaiser 17 yeah. nothing, and you're just starting to wonder, here's the fake punt. That's when that came in, too, and he gets yeah, nailed which that was, <laughs> We didn't even mention the fake punt. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah, there was, was one of those, and it didn't work, um, no. <laughs> unfortunately. but That was almost was like the, the Pro Bowl clip, if you remember. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was tough to watch. and. Uh. Yeah, and there's the late onside kick they did not convert on, correct? Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. even but, I don't even remember how or why or what no, they uh, just so much. The score that. before the half was huge for Northwestern. I think that's mm-hmm. when the momentum definitely started to change a little bit. You from yes. if you're going into halftime 17 nothing, that's that's scary. Going in there with the score, all of a sudden now it's a two possession game. You feel like you can have a little bit of control in this thing and um mm-hmm. You know, then you work with that. But, yeah, I mean, it's just – it just wasn't enough. I guess too little, too late for the uh, Red Raider squad and not a result I think a lot of people were maybe expecting, especially with Veasley not at the helm for the the Kaiser mm-hmm. offense. But great teams find other guys to step up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was no – you wouldn't have been able to tell me, oh, this is this guy's first start. Uh, Justin Wake looked like a professional back there, like he'd been running that offense for years. <laughs> yeah. Um, super comfy back there at quarterback. So yeah, I don't have much else to add, man. It was just an impressive showing from Kaiser. They've had a fantastic season, excited to see what a future holds for them. And then obviously Northwestern, another great squad, always reload very well. Um, So I'm excited to see, you know, maybe we get this as a bit of playoff rivalry type of deal. Cause those are fun back-to-back national titles. um, And now they each have one apiece. Yeah. The fact that they split is really, is really sweet actually. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for a team, for someone too, looking at this and looking at the Kaiser team, that's had two losses. They're like, who the hell has beat these guys? But obviously remember those two teams, Mississippi college and I'm blanking on the other one, but it's another division, a division two squad earlier in the year. I believe it's Valdosta, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Valdosta state who, by the way, made it to the national uh, quarterfinals, and then Mississippi they College, they lost a close one too, didn't make the playoffs, but still a really good squad. I mean, that's those are the games that you that you weed out early and you get some of those, you take some of those beatings, and now you're more well-prepared for a, a squad like Northwestern that, kudos to them, also scheduled some tough out-of-conference. The win over Drake, I think, stands out. They talked about that in the broadcast yeah. a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but you just saw after, you know, those two losses to those D2 teams, um, they learned a lot in the first three yep. weeks of the season. And you could tell they just rolled and rolled and rolled. And it went from close wins and it started to snowball. And they were just beating the crap out of people by the end of the year. And they were playing their best football. They looked immaculate today. Can we talk about the gradient helmets, by the way? <laughs> the light blue to can we just, uh, yeah, can we just white. touch on those quickly while we're, I guess, while we're here? Yeah, you know, I, I can appreciate the attempt at the concept as a creative person myself. I don't. I, I I appreciate it, (laughs) but it just doesn't, doesn't work. I see what we're going for, but like a white helmet. Perfect. All whites would have been clean. 
All whites would have been clean. Been That's clean. all you need. Northwestern's got some. They got some decent uniforms. Nothing, nothing, they're yeah. not trying to do too much. Nothing crazy. I like the stickers. I'm always a. I'm always a sticker guy with helmets. I think that's. That's pretty. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a gimme. But absolutely, they yeah. have one of those can, uh, classic uniform combos. You, you know, know, our way too early expectation of these guys, but um, turnover wise from this for this next season, I mean, what can we kind of expect from from these two squads? To be interesting if, you know, if we find them in a very similar position a year from now. They're going to be in the mix still. Yeah. Um, I know Northwestern, for a fact, is going to be back here. And I know that Kaiser has a decent amount of seniors and guys that have experienced that. Who knows what will happen? Um, but they'll also be back. They're very well coached. This program has risen up the ranks of the NAI very quickly. They're one of the newer programs. And it's uh, been extremely impressive to see the road that they've taken to get here. Obviously, um, short time they've been around, but they get it done, and they look fantastic doing it. Sweet, dude. A lot of good football to come. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, we'll kind of we'll close out the piece on on 145. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate you, brother. We'll have some some fun stuff to do this off season. Probably take a maybe a little bit of a hiatus after the the championships and wrap everything up. Go. But uh, yeah. nonetheless, appreciate you. It was a fun game to watch today, and I, I am very happy though. Whether or not it was a shitty slate or not, the fact that we get three separate times for D3, D2, and NAI, and people that actually Absolutely. in the minority that watch the multitude of them, like myself, can actually sit down and dedicate all of our. Our kind of people. Yeah. Hell yeah. Our kind of people. Hell yeah. If that's you, you let us know. We need those kind of people. We need more (laughs) of those people. We do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate you, man. Have a good holiday if I don't talk to you. Yeah. See ya. See you, dude.